Good morning, Mission View Church. I've been off a couple weeks, so beware. I am so excited to, to be able to open God's Word with you. We're going to be looking at Nehemiah chapter 4, so you can open up there and we'll get ready to get into God's Word here in a moment. I want you to think about a puzzle here that I brought along. This little puzzle was uh, designed by somebody, and the author, the designer of this puzzle, intended for it to create a picture, a picture to encourage somebody. Specifically, this was designed by my daughter, a bunch of pictures of baby Faye, and it's for Gigi Ma, great-grandma, and so she got this at Christmas time. Now, the design wasn't for Gigi Ma to just have pieces of the puzzle spread out all over her house. That wouldn't make any sense. The idea is that these pieces of puzzle are designed to be fashioned together. And once they are put together and in cooperation with one another, then it paints a picture of what we are to be. That's what the designer designed this to be. In many ways, the people of Nehemiah's time were like this puzzle. In many ways, you and I are like this puzzle. Think about Nehemiah before Nehemiah came on the scene. We see individuals kind of doing their own thing. We see people in Babylon. We see people that are in Israel. We see people that are kind of living self-centered lives. It's just whatever they wanted to do. It was their own world. They were individual pieces that were not realizing the reality of how God had designed them. And so God had something much bigger for them. And when Nehemiah came in the picture and God laid this vision on his heart, he started to put these people together. And last week, Garrett Barbush did an incredible job in helping us see how now this vision is starting to become reality and people are working shoulder to shoulder and they're starting to fit together and they're starting to see the design of God's picture of what he wanted for them. It's true in the body of Christ as well. It's very easy for us to kind of do our own thing. Guys, we are notorious at this. We live our own life. We kind of live in isolation. Yes, we have our wife. We have our family. But we don't share our feelings. We don't really get accountable with anybody. And we do our work. And we just go through life drifting this way. And the reality is you're not understanding the full potential of what God wants for you because you're not seeing how you fit in with the greater picture of how God has designed you as a man. And that's true of each and every one of us. God has a greater picture. Now, in Nehemiah's time, the big picture was a temple. It was a wall. See, God was trying to restore this nation. They had been in discipline. God brought them back to the land. He wanted them to worship him again. He wanted them to be protected. That's what he wanted. That was the big picture that he was painting at that time. And that's the vision that God had laid upon Nehemiah's heart right at that moment. And that's what they were to do. In our day and age as a church, there's a lot that has changed. The Messiah has come. Jesus has given the great command and he's given the great commission. Remember what the great command is? You are to love God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. You are to love him with every ounce of your being. And you are to love your neighbor as yourself. That's our outreach. That's how people will know about Jesus Christ, because of love. 
but he also gave us, gave us this great commission. He says we are to go into the world to make disciples of all nations. And as we make disciples of all nations, we are to teach them, and we are to baptize them, and we are to teach them to obey everything that God commanded us. So the, the commission that God has given us, the big picture is that we make disciples, and that is the process of what we are to do as a church. Chris said that we are a 24-7 church. That is absolutely correct. It's not just what happens here. This is our refueling time. This is our time where we get motivated and encouraged by God's word. And then we live out. We work as the church throughout the week. That's what God has designed us to do. So how are we doing at making disciples? Last week, I was so encouraged to see this stage filled up with men that were saying, you know what? We're committed to accountability. I know that these men are committed to wanting to have a greater intimacy with God, to really have that accountability with their brothers, and to be able to be able to have an influence in the world. They want to carry out the mission that we have, which is obviously in the scriptures. We see that with a lot of our women. I've been encouraged to hear that there's nearly 30 women, 15 mentors, 15 protégés, that are beginning this discipleship process. Well, that's just a great start. But we will know that we're accomplishing this when we don't just make disciples, but that we would, or become a disciple, but that we would actually make and reproduce in other people. Do you realize that's the end goal? The end goal isn't just to get a guy and a guy together and a girl and a girl together and for us to talk about the word. The goal is that we would grow, mature, and then we would reproduce. And that we would find and love our neighbor. And that we would help them to understand what the gospel is all about. And that we would begin that discipleship process with them and help them carry along to the point where they can reproduce in other people. That's the mission that God has given us. Now I want you to know, the enemy is not just going to sit back and say, you know what, you guys seem to have this mission thing down and you're going really well, so I'm just going to leave you alone. The enemy's not going to do that at all. The enemy knows that when we start to do exactly what God has commissioned us to do, there will be attacks. There will be attacks on us as a church. There will be attacks on us as an individual. And if you are here today and you feel like you're under attack, this is the right place to be. This is the right place to be, and this is the right message for you to hear today because God wants you to understand what you're to do while you're under attack and so we're going to look at that Nehemiah is going to lay it out beautifully we're going to see some punching going on we're going to see the punches of the enemy and we're going to see the counterpunch of Nehemiah and from that counterpunch we're going to see a total different way in which we fight the world fights one way and God's people are to fight a different way and we're going to learn. This will be a manual for us to understand how we are to fight. Let's ask God to really help us understand that principle in our life. Lord, as we look at your word, help us to see the kind of people you want us to be in fulfilling your mission. Lord, we are your tapestry. I pray that you would paint upon us the, 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 the heart, your heart, of making disciples for all nations. Lord, help us to make disciples within our own community.
but help us to have that vision that goes beyond our own community into places like Tajikistan, to places like Turkey, to places like Thailand, where we see these little girls being rescued from the sex trade and being discipled. Lord, I thank you that we can be a part of this great mission. And Lord, what's amazing in my mind is thinking how you have orchestrated the whole universal body of Christ and how Mission View is just doing our little piece of the puzzle. But you have so many pieces of the puzzle all around the world that you are in just in, in a marvelous way you are orchestrating so that you are seeing disciples made of all nations. And many, many more people each day are praising you and giving praise and worth to you because they now know you as their Lord. Oh, what an awesome thought, God. Lord, pierce our hearts for this battle. Help us to see exactly what you want us to see. And we pray that in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, we're going to see the first punch of the enemy. It starts in verse 1 through verse 3. This is the first punch, and I call it the punch of bullying. Take a look at what happens. Chapter 4, verse 1 says, Now when Sanballat heard that they were building the wall, he was angry and greatly enraged, and he jeered at the Jews. And he said in the presence of his brothers, underscore that, and of the army of Samaria. I'll tell you how they got there in a minute. What are these feeble Jews doing, they asked. Will they restore it for themselves? Will they sacrifice? Will they finish up in a day? Will they revive the stones out of the heap of rubbish and burn ones at that? Tobiah and the, the Ammonite was beside him and said, Yes, what are they building? If a fox goes on it, he will break down their stone walls. Now what we see is opposition starts right away. The building is going by, is in process. People are shoulder to shoulder. They're working, they're building their portion of the walls and the gates. And we see all of a sudden the villain arise. Now in this story, the villain is Sanballat. He is the leader of the group. Now Sanballat has a couple sidekicks, Tobiah, and you'll see the name Geshem. Now what we know of these people is that they were kind of the, the officials of the land. They were people of power. In fact, we saw them already in chapter 2. They came and were part of the greeting committee to Nehemiah. And the words out of their mouth were, we are disturbed that someone has come to promote the welfare of Israel. They are bothered. So they make it known right away that they do not like what Nehemiah is intending to do. Now, what we learn in this chapter is it's interesting that this guy, Sam Ballot, has risen in such power that he has influence over the Samaritan army. And so, as a result, he's able to recruit the Samaritan army to be there as a part of their intimidation tactics. So, take a look at Sam Ballot. He's in charge of the military. He's in charge of that kind of intimidation. Here's what we know about Tobiah. Tobiah was an Ammonite. If you were to go into history, you would understand that the Ammonites were an arch enemy of the people of Israel. You can study this yourself. Maybe Deuteronomy 23, verses 3 and 4 will help you understand that. Now, Tobiah was, one of the per was a, also a person of influence within the Jewish people. 
Because in chapter 6, it indicates that he had family that had intermarried within the Jews. And so he had kind of inside people within the tribe of Judah. And so if, if Sanballat is in charge of the military, then we have Tobiah who's in charge of intelligence. And so he is working on his spies and finding out what's going on within the ranks. And then we have Geshem. He is simply the implementer of their evil plans. So why? Why were these guys so opposed to the Jews now coming back into the land and rebuilding the wall? Here's the answer. Power. Power. These guys had gained a sense of power in that, li in, in that land. They developed a political system where they were the ones that were in charge. And if Nehemiah was to come into Jerusalem and make it strong again, then they would endanger the balance of power that was in the region, and thus it would take away their influence and their wealth, because I believe you me, they learned how to capitalize on power for their own personal gain. But you know what? This tells us something about the Jews that were already living there. Think about that. This, there was a first wave that had come, and they had built this temple, and because of intimidation, they stopped the work. And what we learn about the Jews that were there is that they had become content with less. They had become content with the balance of power that was in the land. They had become content with just settling in. When they didn't buck the system, there was no opposition. There's a lesson there to be learned for all of us. The lesson is simply this. We learn it as a church, and we learn it as individuals. Friends, if you want little opposition in your life, then play it safe. That's all you got to do is play it safe. Don't step out in faith. Don't grow in your intimacy with God. Heavens, do not share your grace story with those around you. And certainly do not be intentional in raising your family. Don't do any of those things, please. If you just want to play it safe, then go through the motions. Come to church. You can throw up a, pr up a prayer once in a while. You can open your Bible on Sunday. But don't go home and open it during the week. Don't do that. Because if you do that, then the Spirit of God might take these words, penetrate this thick skull of ours, and go down to our heart, and He might start putting a mission on your heart. He might start helping you realize what He has designed you for. So if you want to play it safe, and you don't want opposition in your life, then make sure you don't do any of those things. But otherwise, expect opposition. All the time. Because the enemy will come against you. So what do we see in this passage? Verse 2 and 3, first of all, they come up against the workers. They ask a question. What are these feeble Jews doing? Now to set the context, remember the Samaritan army is there. It's kind of like when you were a kid on the playground in elementary school, there was that weasel that thought he knew everything, but he got the biggest bully in, in school to stand behind him somehow, and all of a sudden he was powerful. This is what Sam Ballad and his crew are like because they got these burly Samaritan army men who were mercenaries who will kill at will. They're the ones standing behind, and you hear the jeering 
as they go, as they ask this question. The phrase feeble Jews literally means withered or miserable. So in asking this question, he's basically saying, what are you withering flowers, miserable people trying to do? And you can hear the Samaritans just laughing. You can hear the army people just jeering. So they criticized the work. They bullied the, the, the workers. But they also bullied the work. And they asked three questions that were meant to disparage, to create doubt. First of all, they say, will you fortify the, Will they fortify themselves? The implication here is that you can't protect yourself from us. There's nothing you can do to protect yourself. The second question it was actually very sacrilegious. It says, will they sacrifice? The implication is that the very God who you sacrifice or you worship is the very one that has allowed all this rubble to take place. Do you think he's going to come to your aid? Do you think he's going to help you out? That's the tone in this question. And finally, will they finish in a day? It was as if they were saying, you stupid, stupid Jews. Don't you know how difficult a task this is? You will never accomplish it. You can't do it. Bullying the workers, bullying the work. They even bullied the material. I think it's directed at the individuals, but look at what they say in verse 2. Will they re revive the stones out of a heap of rubbish and burn ones at that? Really, it was the gates that were burned. The walls were just knocked down. There was lies mixed in with truth, but they are trying to criticize this. And finally, they try to bully the finished product. Tobias says, and yes, what they are building, if a fox goes up on it, he will break it down, break down the stone wall. Again, you can hear the laughing. You can hear the jeering. And there's lies that are get going around. And the people... It's meant to discourage them. So how does Nehemiah react? How does he counterpunch with this one? How do you react to such criticism? He reacts with prayer. He reacts with action, with work. Look what he says in verse 4. Hear, O God, for we are despised. Turn back their taunts on their heads and give them up to be plundered in a land where they are captives. Do not cover their guilt, and let not their sins be blotted out from your sight. For they have provoked you to anger in the presence of the builders. So we built the wall. And all the wall was joined together to half its height. For the people had a mind to work. So as you look at this prayer kind of sounds like Nehemiah is like calling down fire upon his enemy. Now, someone might say, you know what, doesn't Jesus say that we're to pray for our enemy? I mean, well, in a roundabout way, he is praying for his enemy. He's just praying judgment down upon them. I could hear someone saying, well, I, I kind of have a coworker I'd like to pray this kind of prayer upon. That'd be really cool. What lessons do we learn here? Number one, first, our first course of action is always prayer. Do you notice how much Nehemiah prays? He prays before he goes to the, before the king. He prays 
now. We're going to see him pray again and again and again because Nehemiah knows that he has to connect with the one more powerful than himself. This is a pattern in Nehemiah's life. It should be a pattern for us. Here's the second thing we see. We see Nehemiah being very real. This prayer resembles the prayer of David in the Psalms. It's called an impeccatory psalm. It's an impeccatory prayer. You can see an example of it for David in Psalm 69. An impeccatory prayer is one where you call judgment upon the enemies of God. And so what David does often in his prayer, as Nehemiah has done here, he starts out by saying, save me, rescue me, I'm sinking, I'm worn out, they hate me, I'm weeping. Very real, very raw. Sometimes as believers, I feel like we have to have some kind of presence before God. Oh, great and gracious, benevolent God. And we might mean that, but there might be something stirring that's so much deeper within our heart. Have you ever been just real and raw with God? I am ticked off. I don't like my circumstances. I don't understand what's happening to me. This is a part of an impeccatory prayer where we are just real and raw with God. But then in these impeccatory psalms, we see that David turns to God and says, I pray to you, just as Nehemiah does. Rescue me, answer me, do not hide. And then he prays God's wrath. Would you bring about your wrath on those that are coming up against you? And then he closes and says, I praise you. That's what David does. In a similar way, Nehemiah is just calling out to God, to answer him in the midst of the fact that God and his principles are being criticized. And what it teaches us as a church, as individuals, God wants honesty in our hurt, in our pain. But notice also in this passage, we learn one other valuable lesson. We don't stop. Nehemiah prayed and then he got back to work. His people got back on the wall. Sometimes the enemy would just want us to stop what we're doing. He wouldn't want us to advance forward. But in this particular situation, the best way in which they were able to testify about God's goodness and greatness is trusting him and advancing forward in the mission that God had for them. My friends, the counterpunch for us in this warfare that we are facing has to begin with prayer. My friends, Satan doesn't really care how our church attendance is. Satan doesn't care how many Bible studies that we are in. Satan doesn't really care if we are fellowshipping with other believers afterwards in the commons or during the week. He doesn't care about any of that. But I will, t I will tell you what he does care about. He trembles when we pray. My friends, when we pray to God, and lift up our hearts and trust in Him, He trembles. He trembles when that group meets at 9 o'clock. There's a handful of people that meet every single Sunday, and they pray for this service. I believe the enemy, enemy trembles. 
When you are in your community groups and you guys get together and pray for each other and you pray in warfare, I've heard stories of how some of the community groups have gotten together and they have taken the entire time just to pray, pray for the needs that are going on in the church. Satan trembles. So hold up this if you got one of these. Hold this up right here. This is a directory. Anybody get a directory? Now, you might think this is just a way for you to know somebody's phone number and email. No, no, no. This is a prayer guide. I want you to pray through this, just like I do. Start praying for people. And when you do, you will see the power of God at work in the lives of this church. Why is prayer so powerful? I will tell you why. Because it is our one way in which we connect with the very one who is much, much, much more powerful than the enemy. Much powerful, much wiser, and he knows the end game. If you want to protect your family, then you are to pray. If you want to be victorious in your life, then you are to pray. If you want to see miracles happen in your life, then you are to pray. And if you want to take full responsibility and being a leader in your family, then you need to pray. And then after you pray, guess what you're to do? Get to work. Get to work. If you are sitting on your butt doing absolutely nothing, if you do inventory of your life and you think, how am I serving God? No, 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 no. Then you are not fulfilling the design of God in your life. God has a design for you where you fit with other pieces within the body of Christ. And God wants you to put your hand to the plow and he wants you to plow straight. And he wants you to work for him. This is a challenge. This is encouragement, I hope. We move on. Here's the next punch. They didn't like what was happening, so they came with the threat of war. Take a look at verse 7. It says, But then when Sanballat and Tobiah and the Arab and the Ammonites and the Ashdods, there's a lot of groups here, I'll talk about them in a minute, heard that the repair of the wall of Jerusalem was going forward and that the breaches were being closed, they were very angry. And they all plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem and to cause confusion in it. And when we prayed to our God and set guards as protection against them day and night, that's what Nehemiah did. It says, and in Judah it was said, the strength of those who bear the burdens is failing. There's too much rubble. By ourselves, we will not be able to rebuild the wall. You see, the, a part of the line was starting to falter. And this is what happens here. See, the plot is th thickening. Sanballat and crew are not happy with the work that's going forward. And so we see four groups arise. We see the Samaritans who are going to come from the north. We're going to see the Ammonites. These are the people of the east. The Arabs were the people of the south, and the Ashdods were the people of the west. And the armies probably of each of these groups were starting to assemble of some sort around the city. And the, this became a regional conflict that was going to happen. And it says in verse 8, the key here is that they all plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem and to cause confusion in it. Isn't it interesting how the world will unite together to fight against the values and the principles that God embraces? Isn't that incredible? I wonder, 
do believers unite as easily? I hope we do. Now keep in mind that there's a bigger stake here. I think for Sanballat, it was really about power. It was about wealth. But I think with the enemy, it was much bigger. You see, throughout history, any time the enemy could foil the plans of God for the Messiah to come through the Jewish people, he would do that. In many places in history, the enemy wanted the Jewish people exterminated. Remember when they were way back in Egypt and Pharaoh came and made them slaves? The enemy wanted the people of Israel exterminated, but instead they grew. We see that they go into captivity. The enemy would want them exterminated, and yet they grow. And he didn't want them to be back in the land, so obviously he's going to bring opposition. He wants them to be destroyed. He wants these armies to invade. He wants the Jews wiped out because he knows if he does so, he succeeds in, in, in eliminating the possibility of a future Messiah. And yet the enemy's plans are always foiled. Notice that Nehemiah continued with his counterpunch of prayer, and he set people on guard in places. But we see the line starting to falter in verse 10. It says that the strength, physical and psychological, started to give out in that verse. It certainly gave the indication. And so I'm sure that some of these people saw or heard about these armies that were coming around the city and they were becoming discouraged. Quite possibly, Tobiah's spies within the tribe of Judah, the people in there, were casting doubters, disparaging remarks. We don't know all that was happening, but this is starting to look like a very, very bleak picture. Church, the world that we live in is much like the setting of Nehemiah's time right here. We're surrounded. We are surrounded. As I look at our world today, I don't know if I have ever seen a bleaker picture in what we have in our world. If you as a believer in some public venue, try this sometime, just in some public venue, say, I believe that marriage should be between a man and a woman. Or say, I believe that Jesus Christ is the only way. Or say that I believe as a man, as a man, I need to take leadership in my home. That is like taking fresh bloody meat and throwing it to the piranhas. That's exactly what will happen. And our world will, uh, will, our world will gladly crucify anyone that has the values of God in their heart. And as a result, we as believers sometimes become discouraged. We sometimes become disillusioned and we've become fearful, just like Nehemiah's people were starting to do. Now notice that the enemy just doesn't stop there. He now comes with the right hook of fear. And this is what he says in verse 11. Our enemy said, they will not know or see till we come against them and kill them. And kill them and stop the work. And that, at that time, the Jews who lived near them came from all directions and said to us ten times, you must return. Do you see what's happening? 
the threat is escalating. Probably the troops are starting to move. The people that are in the neighborhoods, the Jewish people, they're seeing this. They're running to Nehemiah and from 10 different messages. Hey, 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 we got, we got, to, we got to return. We got to return back to the way we were. We got to stop this, in other words. We can't do this because you're going to bring a death. Nehemiah, you're bringing a death sentence on us. Do you see the panic that's in their eyes? Do you hear the fear that's within them? This was what was happening in this situation. It was very real. I think it was FDR who said, the only thing that we have to fear is what? Fear itself. He said this because he knew the power of fear. It was contagious and it could cripple a man, a woman, a nation. Jesus knew the power of fear as well. Remember when the disciples were out on the boat? Remember when the storm came? What did Jesus say to his disciples? You of little, excuse me, you of little faith, why are you so afraid? The Messiah was in the boat. And they're afraid. The Messiah lives in our heart through his spirit. And sometimes we are afraid of this world and the barks and the threats and the things that go against God. My friends, we're always going to have that. Two years ago, we received a call from the school that said, hey, the Freedom From Religion group had written a letter to us because we had religious uh, materials out. It was our information table. It was during summer, and summer school students saw it, and that got reported back to the Freedom From Religion group. Okay, we covered it up. We honored the school. But my answer to that is, I don't care what the Freedom From Religion group thinks. I'm not going to be afraid of them. As an individual, we cannot allow fear to drive us. What should drive us? Take a look at the last two counterpunches, and we'll close with this. Last two counterpunches. The first one is a courageous reminder by, by Nehemiah. It was a word of encouragement. Take a look at what he says. So in the lowest parts of the space behind the wall... In open places, I stationed the people by their clans with their swords, their spears, their bows. And I looked and arose and said to the nobles and to the officials and to the rest of the people. Now he's gathered them together. Do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome and fights for your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your homes. So step one Nehemiah post guards on the most part, vulnerable parts of the wall so that the enemy could see from afar that now there's people on the wall with weapons. And he weaponizes, step two, every single person. They're not going to go down without a fight. They are going to fight man, woman, and child. They are going to defend the cause. And, and you know what you're going to do? Nehemiah's word of encouragement is that we, if we fight, we are going to believe God to be victorious. You see, we got a God who doesn't have fear. We have a God who says we are to operate by faith. So therefore, you are not to be afraid. And what you are to do is you are to remember the Lord. 
great and awesome. Why remember? Because sometimes as people, we have short memories. Do you remember the one who helped you out of the previous crisis? Yeah, that was God. Do you remember the one who helped you out of the previous, previous crisis? Yeah, that would be God. Oh, do you remember the one who helped you out of the previous, previous, previous crisis? Oh, yeah, that would be God. You see, we forget, we have short-term memories, that God is the one who comes to our rescue. He is the one who fights our battles for us. And we are to trust in Him. Recently, I made a new purchase. I bought these glasses. I think they make my bald head look glorious. I really do. I, I, I love them. Now, I want you to know that there's something special about these glasses they're tinted in such a way that when I put them on, it's a, called the tint of the greatness of God tint. So when I see through these glasses, I now look at life through the perspective of the greatness of God. It's pretty amazing how these things work. Now, let me just give you an illustration. When I take these things off and I think about cancer, for example, because that's my battle, I think about the the horrible aspect of cancer. I think of all the yuck that goes with cancer. I think of all the bad stuff. But when I pop these babies on, all of a sudden, whoo, there's a great new perspective. There's a new perspective that God has actually given me a privilege of cancer. He's given me a privilege because this is opening up doors so that I can share the gospel with those that are around me. People love to talk to bald people. I th I'm convinced of it. And if they don't like talking to bald people, when they know somebody has cancer, they're willing to hear what you're going through. And at every single time, I am trying to give credit and praise to God for what I'm going through. Because this is my privilege. This is now a part of my race. And my question for you is, what overwhelming situations do you need to start to look at life through the greatness of God? I know you're going to want to borrow my glasses. You're not allowed to. You can go see Dr. Hansen down at the eye clinic. This is where I purchased them. You can go get a pair yourself. But seriously, when we view problems, when we view our trials, when we view our troubles, our overwhelming circumstances through the greatness of God, you will gain a perspective and you will realize that God truly does work out everything for His good, as Romans 8 talks about. Now let me be clear. Not everything is good. Not everything is without pain. If I could be so honest, the last eight months of my life with my wife and our family have been the hardest in my 52 years. I have never cried so much. I have never anguished so much in just our personal circumstances. Actually, you have been our joy. You have been just that uplifting spirit because of things that we've gone through in our own family. We've never experienced the storms that we have experienced. And so there is a lot of yuck. And so I'm not just saying, hey, you just put on your glasses and see the greatness of God. No, I'm saying from experience of a lot of crap going on in life. It hurts. It hurts bad. But there is a greater perspective that God always wants us to get to. 
And that is, he is in control. And it doesn't matter if I have cancer. It doesn't matter what I go through in life. Because God is in control. And I'm going to trust him. It's my choice. I could choose something else, but my choice is God. My choice is that he will be the anchor to my soul. And my goodness, whatever you're going through, you have your own stuff. Choose God. Choose him as your anchor. You will not be disappointed. No, the outcome might not be what you think it should be. Let me be clear on that. There can be some yuck. There could be outcomes that you don't like. But God is in control. I said earlier that this is probably the bleakest world I've ever seen in my 52 years. But can I tell you, I am more optimistic than ever. More optimistic than ever. Philippians chapter 2 says, as this world gets darker, our light gets brighter as we hold out the word of truth. There is opportunity all around us, and it's beautiful. I don't fear raising kids in this world because I get to raise an army. I get to raise a grandchild, help raise a grandchild. It's your job, Sarah, but I'm going to help <laughs> because God is in control. Let me close with this. The last counterpunch I just love it. It's a bulk passage, but look at what happens. I call this the sword and the trowel uh, of what happens here. When our enemies heard that it was known to us that God, known to us, and that God had frustrated their plans, we all returned to the wall and each to his work. From that day on, half of the servants worked on constructions, half held the spear, shield, bow, and coats of mail, armor. And the leaders stood behind uh, the whole house of Judah who were building on the wall. Those who carried burdens were loaded in such a, loaded in such a way that each laborer on, uh, uh, on the work with one hand, uh, they, they had one hand, that's the trowel, where they're working with their trowel and held weapons in their other. And each of the builders had swords strapped to their sides while he built. The man who sounded the trumpet was beside me. And I said to the nobles and to the officials and to the rest of the people, the work is great and widely spread, and we are separated on the wall from afar. In the place where you hear the sound of the trumpet, rally there. Our God will fight for us. So we labored at the work, and half of them held the spear from, from the break of dawn until the stars came out. I also said to the people of that time, let every man and his servant pass the night within Jerusalem, that they may be a, guard, be a guard for us by night and may labor by day. So neither I nor my brothers nor my servants nor the men of the guards who follow me, none of us took off our clothes. Each kept his weapon on his right hand. Now in this last counterpunch, I want to close just by giving four principles that we should hold on to. Now remember, we've already gotten the principle of prayer. Hold on to that. Prayer and work. We've also gotten the principle of the greatness of God. But here's four things for you to think about. Number one, we let God do only what God can do. 
Did you notice in verse 15, when our enemies heard that it was known to us and that God had frustrated their plans? See, they backed off. They realized that this wasn't going to be without a fight. And so I don't know if those soldiers started thinking about their livelihood or whether they would live, whether God put a spirit of fear within their lives. I don't know. But they didn't fight. They didn't attack. But they were ready. And they, had, they were ready and they were going to do whatever they could do. But the, the, the reality was it was only God that could prevent this from happening. And I think sometimes in our life, we fret over so many things that are so much out of our control. My friends, there are things that are, that are totally out of your control. You can't control what your boss does. You can't control what your adult children go and do. You can't control the circumstances in your life. We can't do that. But what we can do is we can trust in the one who can do something about it. So we let God do only what God can do. We have that in our mind. Number two, we have a nothing will stop God's work attitude. Notice that half the people worked, half the people were on the wall. Some of the people had a sword and a trowel in their hand. This is the kind of faith that says, I believe in God so much that I will work with grit and I will take my place on the battle line when need be. See, here's the, here's the goal of the enemy. The goal of the enemy is that he doesn't want you doing anything. He wants you sitting dormant. He wants you sitting idle. He doesn't want you taking initiative as a father in your family. He doesn't want you to go on dates with your wife. He doesn't want you to be actively serving within the body of Christ. He doesn't want you sharing your faith, your story, to those that are around you. He doesn't want that. And if he can get you to sit idle, then he accomplishes his goal. But we are to have a sense of grit about us. And that we are to have a nothing will stop us from working attitude. Mission View, do we have that attitude? I hope so. Number three, we have a rally cry. Notice that wherever Nehemiah went, the trumpeter went with them. The one who could sound the trumpet could, uh, to, to let the, 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 it be known amongst the people that there is trouble, rally at this point. Now what's interesting, they didn't have cell phones to call their cousin on the other side of the wall. There was no cell phone towers at that time. That's silly. There was no cell phones. There was no way of communication other than a trumpeter. So what is our way of communication? Our communication is email. It's text messages. So if you are on the email prayer chain of Mission View, you're going to get something during the week. You've gotten prayer requests from people that have indicated, I need a rally call. I need you to come alongside of us. Last week, this was so cool. Last week at the end of the service, I shared with you that Corey Veldheisen, Evan and Carol's son, was possibly going to have a trach. It was looking that way. And now I visited him last night. He has no trach at all. He has no ventilator. That's because of prayer. That's because of the rally cry. That's because of people praying and there's power in prayer. We've got to keep lifting him up. He's not out of the woods, but keep praying for Corey. That's our rally cry. 
My friends, do not be afraid to let your needs be known. One of the reasons why we ask for information, we want your email. Is, and if you get no communication with the church, that just means we have none of your information. And if you would want to be a part of the rally cry, then please fill out that brochure. Please, it's at the top of the bulletin. Fill that out because we want you to be a part of the rally cry. And here's the final thing. We don't let our guard down. Nehemiah didn't let anyone leave Jerusalem. He posted watchmen day and night. They didn't even change their clothes. Why did they do that? Because they weren't going to let down their guard. And there's a sense that we cannot let down our guard within the body of Christ because of the enemy that wants to attack us. As we close out our service, I'm speaking to some people that truthfully, you are battle-weary. You're battle-weary because of whatever you're going through. And here's last week, uh, we closed out by just everybody congesting together in the middle, shoulder to shoulder. And here's what I'd like to do. During the last, there's actually going to be two songs. There's just one song, the last song. During the last song, if you are battle-weary, you don't have to explain your circumstances. All I want you to do is stand up. And I want somebody to come around you and just pray for you during the song. The rest of you can sing the song, but if there's anybody, is there anybody here that you would honestly say, I'm not going to ask you to come forward, you would just say, I am battle weary right now. Would you raise your hand? Then stand up, please. Stand up. Just stand up where you're at, and I'm going to ask those around you to pray for you. Lay hands on you and just pray for you. Stand up right now. Go ahead. If you are battle weary, go ahead. Bob, stand up. Amanda, stand up. And I would like for you to get around those people. We have the Veldheisens back in the back. Evan, get around somebody. Everybody else stand up. Get around somebody and let's just pray. Let's just, before we actually do this song, I want us to just pray for those that are battle weary. Put your hands upon them and just pray. Let's take just a moment to pause and pray for them. Let's pray. Go ahead and pray in your groups. Heavenly Father, you hear our prayers. And Lord, I know that there are probably many more people that uh, just don't want to bring attention to the fact that they're going through some deep stuff right now. And so, Lord, you know who that is. And so we just lift that person up. 
We ask, Father, that you would take them in your arms and that you would encourage them. May you use the words of this message from Nehemiah 4 to really be an encouragement to their hearts. And even as we close out, Lord, with this song, what a powerful song that just speaks of how we are yours. Though the waters rise and the oceans roars and the earth shakes, you are the God over the storms. And so, Lord, as we sing this with all of our hearts, we just cry out, we cry it out to you as a prayer. And we ask, Father, that you would do something beautiful within our midst. We pray that in Christ's name. Amen. Everyone stand. Let's sing.